And welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Usry, and I'm happy to welcome Aram Gudsuzian back to the program today. Aram is a professor of history and the chair of the history department at the University of Memphis. He's appeared on Book Talk before to discuss his books, King of the Court, about NBA legend Bill Russell, Down to the Crossroads, Civil Rights, Black Power, and the Meredith March Against Fear, and The Men in the Moment, The Election of 1968, and the Rise of Partisan Politics in America. Today we'll be talking about his latest project, Man on a Mission, James Meredith and the Battle of Ole Miss, an illustrated graphic history. The illustrator of the book is Bill Murray, and the editor is Vijay Shah, and it's published by the University of Arkansas Press. Aram, you've written about Meredith before in your book, Down to the Crossroads, and that was about his march against fear that happened a few years after his attempt to get into Ole Miss. How did you become involved with this particular project and the graphic history format? As you suggest, uh, I had written uh, about James Meredith uh, when I wrote Down to the Crossroads, uh, which was a history of the Meredith March Against Fear from June of 1966. The first interview I ever did for that book was with James Meredith. That would have been about 2010, and that's when I first got to know him. And I got a sense of his unique political outlook, his really interesting personality, and some of the contradictions about who James Meredith was. And I, of course, I wrote about some of those themes in Down on the Crossroads. A few years later, I had a friend, a historian named Trent Brown, who was editing a series through the University of Mississippi Press that was reissuing books about the civil rights movement from the 1960s. And we decided that I would write the introduction to the reissued version of Meredith's memoir from 1966 called Three Years in Mississippi, which in many ways recounts his struggles with the integration of the University of Mississippi and then the larger Ole Miss crisis as it existed. And it ends as he's about to embark on the march against fear. Uh, and so I did some more research into Meredith at that point, learned more about the Ole Miss crisis beyond what I'd already uh, knew from the earlier research. And that was the springboard into the graphic history, Man on a Mission, the book that just came out, which is designed for younger readers. There was an editor at the time at University of Mississippi Press named Vijay Shah, who was really interested in graphic books and pitched the idea to me. He also lined up an illustrator, a man named Bill Murray, who's an elderly African-American man who has almost, I think, five decades of experience as a cartoonist and an illustrator for publications such as Ebony Magazine and Jet, USA Today, Chicago Defender. He continues to have a cartoon that he publishes through the Pittsburgh Courier. And so the three of us kind of became a team at that point. Vijay ended up leaving the press and working as an independent editor, uh, but we continued to, to all collaborate in that way. So that was the backstory in terms of how we got to beginning this project. So how did it end up at the University of Arkansas Press? Sort of a back and forth story with a, with a number of different presses who are interested in the idea, but a little bit hesitant to take on a graphic novel that a lot of them didn't regularly publish in the genre. And there was just an editor at the University of Arkansas Press who was from the beginning quite enthusiastic about it and really wanted the project. And that's what really led us there. Mm -hmm. Did uh, John Lewis's March trilogy kind of open the door for more possibilities in the genre? Certainly. And as we were shopping the book and as we were putting together the proposal, Obviously, we made reference to March because that had been such a well-received, popular, acclaimed, good-selling book. We were able to sort of use that as a springboard to get more people interested in this kind of work. And I have to say that around this time, we've seen a number of excellent graphic histories. You know, Oxford University Press, for instance, does a series of historical uh, graphic novels that have been really well-received. There's a more recent one on the Emmett Till case by a historian named Brian Mitchell, really excellent historian. So this is uh, it's a growing field for sure. What was the practical aspects of this collaboration? like? I mean, when did the text come in? How did you come up with the text? What part does Vijay play as the editor? And how do you get that to Bill? And it's a good question and one that was complicated by three people living in three different places. We were doing this in the midst of COVID. So it was mostly done via email. And 
the process as we began it was that I would write a script for each page. And I would try to use some photographs from there. I did a lot of research in, into photographs of Meredith and the Ole Miss crisis to try to give Bill kind of a springboard, a way to sort of visualize what we were trying to get across in each of the panels. For me, the biggest challenge was, you know, I'm, I'm a historian. I'm used to words. Words are my tools. I'm used to sort of setting scenes and describing things, obviously through words. And in a graphic history, you have to let the pictures do much of the work. You have to let the visuals do much of the work. So trying to convey action in visuals, trying to convey bigger, deeper meanings in visuals, and then using as few words as possible, trying to be as sparing as possible, it was really a challenge for me. The other big adjustment that I had to make fairly early on in the process as I was writing these scripts was figuring out what Bill was good at to really get a sense of his style as an artist. And it turned out that what he was really excellent at was taking photographs and using them as the basis for the sort of striking visual images that, that he was able to present in the book with all sorts of sort of trademark artistic flourishes that really gave them their own flavor and gave them their own meaning. You know, when I first started to write out the script, I had John Lewis's March in, in mind. And, and in that book, you see sort of characters leaving panels, sort of uh, crisscrossing between uh, uh, diff different frames. There's a lot more sort of action outside of a traditional panel. And Bill, as a more traditional cartoonist, wasn't used to that form. And, and so I stopped trying to push him in those directions. Once I understood visually that the more simple I made it, that Bill was going to flourish in that, in that way, that really helped the project take shape. That's how we developed, I think, the distinct visual style that this book has. Because in a way, it seems almost as if even the photographs almost seem like they were photocopied. Mm -hmm. And then worked from there. So it kind of gives this strange historical sense to it. Right. I think the, the larger meaning we want to get across is, right, this is a, a filtered reality, so to speak, right? In, in, a, in a graphic novel, you're not portraying the history exactly as it was, right? You, but you are trying to remain faithful to the historical material to be as accurate as possible in, in that way, while at the same time realizing that it's the, you know, that you have more sort of visual leeway than you would in a traditional historical account. So in your writing, how much of it is direct quotations from people and how much is it is the own text you had to make to, to move the story along? Early on, we made the decision that we would tell the story in the voice of James Meredith. And so we especially relied on the memoir that I mentioned earlier, Three Years in Mississippi, the one that he published in the 1960s, to try to drive that story forward. And so we open with James Meredith sort of narrating as an older James Meredith, and then you get a, kind of a visual cue that he's telling the story from now and narrating it back up to his, his present day. And so we try to keep it as much as possible in that sort of authentic Meredith voice, especially as his voice in the 1960s. And that, to me, along with Bill's uh, visual style, is what gives the book its sort of unique personality and its, uh, and its distinctness as a graphic history. When you interviewed him in 2010, did you talk about the Ole Miss or did you just concentrate on the March Against Fear? It's a good question and an interesting one because whatever you ask James Meredith about is not necessarily what he's going to answer. He is a very peculiar man to interview in the sense that if he doesn't like your question or just doesn't want to talk about that, he ignores it. He can drift into sort of a stony silence at times, sort of drift off, uh, you know, his, his eyes drift off and almost into space. But then you can catch him in these moments where he is particularly animated and particularly compelling. When I interviewed him for Down to the Crossroads, that, that first interview in 2010, I can't say that I achieved any specific historical information from him that I didn't already know. But it was, in a lot of ways, it was an especially valuable interview just for getting a sense of his style, his personality. He has a particular charisma when you meet him in person that, that you, it helps to understand why people were drawn to him at the time. Uh, you got a sense of his resoluteness, his fierce individualism. Meredith is, as I've said before, is, is a unique personality. He doesn't fit into the box that we often put our civil rights icons into. 
do you think that's because of who he is or does he strive to be someone you can't pigeonhole? Both. Meredith has, from the beginning of his life, has always felt that he had a special role to play in the world. He would often refer to it as his divine responsibility. That came across in some ways in a very traditionally conservative frame, in the sense that he was a classic individualist, that he really believed in self-reliance, that he believed in pulling yourself up from the bootstraps. So that, kind of that romantic ideal. Yeah, the sort of a classical conservatism rooted in the power of the individual. At the same time, in many ways, he was a radical. His divine responsibility ultimately was this mission to destroy the system of white supremacy. And he's doing this from Mississippi in the 1950s and 1960s. And he saw his admission at the University of Mississippi as the first step in this larger plan where he would play this central role in dismantling white supremacy. You could call it grandiose. You could call it overly ambitious. But at various moments in American history, including the Ole Miss crisis and including the Meredith March four years later, he was at the center of America's racial storm. He grew up on his family's farm in northern Mississippi, 84 acres. Do you think the fact that they were able to not be sharecroppers and control their own destiny to the extent that was possible for black people in the South at the time, that that helped into this thinking? Yeah, in many ways, Meredith had a very unique up upbringing within Mississippi because of his family, and in particular because of his father, whose uh, name was Moses Meredith, but everyone knew, his, knew him as Cap Meredith. The Cap was the one who was able to acquire that 84-acre farm. He was registered to vote in Atala County when very few African-Americans uh, had that power. And Cap tried to insulate Meredith and his nine brothers and sisters from the harshness of Jim Crow. They mostly stayed on their farm. If friends came to play, you know, they came to their house. They never went to white people's homes because he didn't want to put them through the indignity of going to the back door of, of a white person's home and, and going through these patterns of sub subservience. So as Meredith tells the story, or as he remembers it, that he didn't really encounter Jim Crow in the same way that many other African-Americans did, and thus didn't deal as much with kind of the psychological burdens of a society constantly telling you you're, you're inferior. To what extent that is accurate? It seems hard to imagine that someone you know, living in Mississippi in the 1930s and 1940s wouldn't have to negotiate the struggles of Jim Crow, but that's the story that Meredith tells. And it was good timing that when he joined the military is about the time that Truman desegregated the military. Yeah, Meredith enrolled in the Air Force soon after he graduated from high school, in the, right, right at the beginning of the 1950s. And it was, as you suggest, two years after Harry Truman's executive order desegregating the military. And Meredith consciously chose the Air Force because it was the least racially restrictive of any of the branches of the armed service at the time. His experience bears that out to some degree. He was promoted to sergeant. He always received positive evaluations. He was stationed at Air Force bases around the country. And while he was doing so, given his sort of stance of upward mobility, he took a lot of uh, college courses with the money that he earned from the military. He would invest that in land back in Mississippi. And so he was always sort of building up this sense of a background, so to speak, for his challenge in the 1960s. Another key aspect of his Air Force service was that in 1957, he got stationed in Japan at Tachigawa Air Force Base. And that was a eye-opening experience for him as well, because in Japan, of course, there was the same patterns of, of race that you would see in America. And in many ways, that was very liberating, very freeing. It gave him a, a, an alternative viewpoint in some ways. At the same time, this is the time of America's budding civil rights revolution, right? The, the Brown decision of 1954, the Montgomery bus boycott of 1955, 56, the, the Little Rock, Rock crisis, mm -hmm. the Little Rock Nine in, uh, in 57. So these were building national flashpoints where in a lot of ways, Remember, James Meredith believed that he had this divine destiny to destroy white supremacy. He was kind of chomping at the bit to return home, in particular to fight the battles of the civil rights movement. Yeah, it seems 
that his time in the military would have served him well in giving him this kind of discipline and this ability to overcome adversity when what he was going to face in the 60s in Mississippi. In many ways, it reinforced his older values, these ideas of discipline, self-reliance, education, all the things that he really believed in, the Air Force reinforced those in him. But as you're suggesting, Stephen, absolutely, I think the military provided him with a way to be, so to speak, a way to maintain a stoic demeanor, a way to... uh, exercise personal discipline in the, in the face of a crisis that he would put to direct use at Ole Miss. In the course of the book, he mentions community many times, and that seems like within him, it's the same dichotomy we have in America, the push and pull between the individual and the community. Mm-hmm. Even as he is sort of creating the central role for himself, he talks in three years in Mississippi in particular in that memoir, he often writes about his sort of portrayal of the black community in Kosciuszko, the town that he grew up in, then in Jackson, and how much he's buoyed by the support of fellow African-Americans, that he relies on that give and take, that he relies on the pride that people uh, take in his quest. One of the stories that he tells is about, you know, when he steps into, uh, it's, it's the break in between his two semesters at Ole Miss, and he goes to a nightclub, and the waiter there is so just overjoyed to see him, and he says, you're, you're fighting them white folks, and, and they're just so proud of, of what he's doing, and, and those are clearly important instances to him. Another example is before his admission when he's going through the the big legal challenge and he's constantly in court and you know they're at a federal appeals court and the court is packed with african-american people who are there to just show their support for him and that, that meant a lot to him so even as the consummate individualist he recognizes that what he's doing is not he's not doing it selfishly he's not going to Ole Miss just so he can get an education at Ole Miss he's very conscious of the fact that he is doing so on behalf of a larger african-american community why did he decide to come back to mississippi knowing that it would be so difficult to exist as a black person there. He tells a story about, and in particular, he tells a story in the context of the Ole Miss crisis when he's stationed in Memphis. You know, he's sort of ferried up to Memphis in the month before the integration at Oxford because it's a safer place to be. He's he's a constant source of death threats and so on. And so they're constantly going back and forth across the state line. And there's this big welcome to Mississippi sign that he sees. And it's a sign that fills him with both hope and love because, you know, he loves the land. He loves the people. He really believes in the future of Mississippi and in some ways across racial lines in that sense. But it also, he's very aware of its fears of its of its oppression this is the land of emmett till this is the land of the citizens council that is notorious for its for its race relations in this era that kind of fits into meredith's larger vision that he possesses a special role to destroy the system in the belly of the beast so to speak as you mentioned with the brown decision in 54 and the little rock crisis what was the state of mississippi's justification to keep up with segregation you know in the aftermath of the brown decision it's not like Uh, there was an immediate integration of Southern schools. In fact, far from it. In a state like Mississippi, there was virtually no integration of schools uh, in in the early 1960s. It's a a much longer process that goes on and ultimately needs more federal intervention for it to successfully take place. But what schools have become in the Deep South is really a site of resistance for whites, right? That it was the place to stage what they refer to as massive resistance. Because if the Brown decision saw the integration of schools is kind of an engine of democratic citizenship, right? If we can get our young people into integrated spaces, then that's going to drive forward a more integrated America. Well, segregationists saw fear of that exact thing. And so they saw the integration of schools as the stepping stone to you know, a racially polluted society or a miscegenation uh, in particular. Uh, sexuality was, of course, at the hardest. If, if black boys are, and white girls in particular are going to school together, then that raises the specter of, of interracial sex and the taboo that, that exists in that era about that. So Mississippi in the early 1960s is what a history professor at Ole Miss named James Silver calls the closed society, a society that is segregated in just about every aspect, that is anti-democratic in its larger nature as a result. 
You mentioned massive resistance. Mm-hmm. I remember there was a, a radio commentator. Was it Kilpatrick? Was that his name? Mm-hmm. Could you talk about massive resistance and what that practical application was that in the South? The basic theory or philosophy of massive resistance is that wherever there's the threat of integration, as segregationists, we have to devote all our resources to try to block that from happening, that we have to, you know, in other words, not make any strategic accommodations, that we have to fight and fight and fight to not give an inch, essentially. That, that's the basic philosophy behind massive resistance. So that's why you see, for instance, in the legal realm, the idea of interposition, that, that states can try to block federal law. And that's sort of like a dubious legal doctrine that we see segregationists use in the early 1960s as, as means to try to, for instance, block James Meredith's admission from the university. Now, why did Meredith choose Ole Miss as opposed to Mississippi State or Southern Miss or any one of those other colleges? Now, Meredith didn't need to go to another university. I should start there. And he, after he comes back, he's enrolled at Jackson State, which at the time was Jackson State College, which is the historically black institution in the, in the state's capital. And he's close to graduation uh, by, the, by this time. But he makes a conscious choice to apply to the University of Mississippi because he sees it as kind of the bastion of white privilege as the, as the center of white supremacy in Mississippi. It's the place where Mississippi's elite are trained, right? They're lawyers and they're, and they're doctors and so on. They're politicians. And he envisions a career in politics. So he sees this as his key stepping stone into uh, destroying white supremacy. It has a larger practical but also symbolic value than going to Mississippi Southern or Mississippi State, for instance. You mentioned in the book that he was not the first black man to apply to a Mississippi white college at that time, and the results were terrible. Right. In the late 1950s, in particular, there are two cases that we know about. One is a man named Clennon King, who is a history professor at Mississippi Southern, but he applies to graduate school at Ole Miss in in their history department. And he is essentially forced into an insane asylum. That becomes a way that they sort of deal with him. Another man named Clyde Kennard, a military veteran, tried to apply for admission into Mississippi Southern. And he was uh, arrested on a trumped-up traffic violation while he was on campus. Later, he was framed for stealing $25 of chicken feed. And he was sentenced to years in Parchman Penitentiary, the most notorious prison in the state. So that gives you a sense of the depths of white resistance to the integration of schools in Meredith's era. Were there any official reasons given for his rejection of his application? Or was it just no? So when Meredith applied to the university, he originally just applied. Only later did he inform them that that he was African-American. And so the original justification for not letting him in was that he wasn't academically qualified. At the time, you were supposed to get five letters of recommendation from university alumni. And of course, as a black man, he wasn't going to be able to do that. And so he launched this legal challenge as a result. Again, this started with Meredith himself, but he was able to get the NAACP on board. He became friends with Medgar Evers, who at the time was the field secretary of the Mississippi NAACP. And Evers said, you know, you need to write to Thurgood Marshall in New York. The NAACP also had its legal branch, the Legal Defense Fund. And Thurgood Marshall ultimately sent one of his attorneys a woman named Constance Baker Motley, who's become a very significant figure in the legal history of the civil rights movement. And she was Meredith's lead attorney. She helped to put together, you know, sort of an elaborate paper trail to document all of his qualifications and and that they were crossing their T's and dotting their I's, so to speak. And that's a case that started in 1961 and it continued for over a year. There was a number of of legal challenges. It went, one court rejected Meredith's application. It was appealed up to a federal appeals court where ultimately a federal judge said that he had a constitutional right to attend and had the qualifications and, and everything was in order. And that was in June of 1962, which ultimately set up his integration of the school itself registration in September of that year. But the school resisted mightily. Very much so. And much of that was driven by the political rhetoric of the governor of Mississippi, Ross Barnett. Barnett plays a key role in this element of controversy turning into a full-blown crisis. 
at this point, Meredith has won his case. He has a, you know, it's, it's clear he has a federally documented right, the constitutional right to attend the university. So it's going to be enforced by the federal government to the degree that it has to. And so Barnett is sort of a two-faced figure in this because when he's in negotiations with the administration of John F. Kennedy, and in particular, Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy, he's promising that, yes, we'll take care of it. There'll be order. We'll, we'll cover this, even as he's constantly resisting the idea of Meredith attending there and calling him a communist and all these other things. But then back in Mississippi, he's realizing that it's political gold for him to resist Meredith's integration. So as far as any white citizen of Mississippi knows, Barnett is going to fight this tooth and nail. Maybe the most famous example of this is right before Meredith's integration, the Ole Miss football team is playing a game in Jackson and Barnett speaks at halftime and gives a speech where he talks about how he loves Mississippi and loves its customs and loves its heritage. And it's clearly, you know, everyone recognizes that Meredith's integration is, is what's behind his language. And it's you know, sort of a chilling moment for those who are supporting James Meredith at that time. And so that creates the larger political climate. Plus, Barnett is actively blocking Meredith's registration. His lieutenant governor, Paul Johnson, when Meredith shows up in Oxford, you know, uses the state police, known as the Mississippi Highway Patrol, to block Meredith's admission into the building for registration. Later, he tries to register at a federal building in Jackson, and Barnett is there and rejects it again. So there's multiple attempts to register at the university that are blocked by Barnett and by his representatives. The Old Miss Board of Trustees has given the governor this power to do so. What role did the federal government play in eventually getting Meredith into school? Kennedy administration feels that it is in something of a bind. I mean, we, we might think of now of the Kennedy administration as supportive of the civil rights movement, when in reality, in the, especially in the early years of the administration, it was a much more mixed bag, so to speak. With much of the focus, uh, John F. Kennedy's focus on the Cold War, he sees civil rights in many ways as a distraction. Also, it would split the party. And the other big factor there, of course, is that the Democratic Party is this unique coalition at that, at that moment, right? It is still the party of the White South. They had voted for Kennedy in, in 1960, mostly, but it is also the party of African-Americans in the North and other members of the working class in the North. So it's this coalition that is will fall apart essentially over race. And because Kennedy won such a close election in 1960, as he's going into 64, he wants to, of course, hold on to the white Southern vote. And nothing's going to alienate that vote more than a federal military presence in the South that evokes the memories of the, of the Civil War and Reconstruction and, and brings up those demons again. Especially at the centennial of the war going on at that <laughs> exactly, time too. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's 100 years after the Civil War at that time. And so that's the language that's out there. And you see that in the resistance to the Civil Rights Movement is, you know, you see the Confederate battle flags uh, that fly often, uh, including with the Ole Miss crisis, in resistance to that integration. And so Kennedy would like to avoid as much federal force as possible, while at the same time insisting upon Meredith's constitutional right to to attend the university. He's trying to pull off both. And so the Kennedys think they have the solution and that Barnett ultimately promises that, they'll, that it'll be an orderly integration. But when Meredith, of course, shows up on campus on the night of September 30th, 1962, Barnett withdraws the Mississippi Highway Patrol from the scene, which basically leaves about 500 U.S. Marshals holed up in, a, in the administration building called the Lyceum, surrounded by a mob of two to 3,000 people. And that mob can include students, it can include members of the community. It also includes far-right extremists from all around the country, most notoriously a, a former general who's since disgraced named Edwin Walker because of his far-right extreme segregationist politics. And the marshals had promised not to use rifles, so their only weapons are tear gas and clubs. And there's a mob out there that's shooting guns, that is throwing bricks, they're throwing bottles, fashioning Molotov cocktails. So it's a, it's a gruesome scene. Hundreds of people end up injured as a result, including a large number of marshals. Two innocent bystanders die, one of whom is a jukebox repairman who was just sort of observing the scene and got shot by a stray bullet. The other is a French journalist who is 
killed under somewhat mysterious circumstances. No one knows exactly what happened there. You know, by the time that President Kennedy calls in U.S. Army troops, they come from Memphis, about 5,000 troops come, but it's 2 a.m. by the time they're able to arrive. And by that time, the campus is a war zone. When Meredith wakes up the next morning, you can still smell the tear gas and the, you know, there's overturned, burned out cars. And it's, uh, it looks like a bomb hit the University of Mississippi. You talk about how he is very much uh, committed to his individualism, but he probably never felt more like a solo individual than when he was there at the university. Yeah, during that year at the University of Mississippi, he says, I was alone, but never by myself. He was alone because he was the only black person there. He was under constant attention. Uh, he was constantly being called racial slurs. He said it was months before he could step out of his dorm in the morning without being called the N-word. In this ultimately situation where people were constantly looking at him with hostility, but he was also constantly protected by federal officials, by U.S. Marshals, who had to follow him around campus and, and stayed in his room while he was studying. And so he had the worst of both worlds, so to speak, under this constant surveillance. Going back to what you were suggesting about his time in the military, right? He needed that sort of sense of personal discipline to really endure this exceptionally trying year. And so he did graduate, but how long did it take for the university to become effectively integrated as opposed to this one special case? Well, I think there are some people who would say it's still not. Yeah. Maybe some African-American students at the University of Mississippi now who, who would question uh, that. And, I, you know, there are others who are more well qualified to answer the full dimensions of that question. But in terms of numbers, the University of Mississippi goes through quite a gradual uh, integration. By the 70s, of course, there's a, there's a more substantial black population on campus, but it's still, you know, very much a minority there. So it's, it's a decades-long process, I, I think, is, is the fairest way to answer that part of the question. In the years after, with the march and him getting shot mm -hmm. at the beginning of the march, his life just took so many weird turns mm -hmm. over the decades. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it really did. You know, Meredith is in many ways such a paradox because it's that fierce individualism and that resolve that makes him such a special character at certain times in American history with the University of Mississippi and then with the Meredith March. At other times, it takes him careening down these paths of failure, essentially. You know, uh, after he graduates from Ole Miss, it's, it's, uh, he, he goes through the summer term there. So it's August of 1963 when he graduates. He moves to Washington, D.C. He starts a uh, educational fund for high school students who have the potential to attend college, but he abandons that quest fairly soon. He accepts a fellowship to study in Nigeria at the University of Ibadan for three years, but he leaves after one year. He, he's unhappy with the situation there. He enrolls at Columbia Law School uh, in New York City, uh, with the intention of a return to politics in Mississippi, but he's kind of lost his voice at that point. He's not part of any established civil rights organization. He's not sort of resonant in the public imagination in 65, early 1966. There's a New York Amsterdam News, a black newspaper, has a headline that says, whatever happened to James Meredith? Like, they sort of lost track of him. But then again, he's able to inject himself into this national conversation through his distinct ability to just sort of forge his own path. He decides he's going to march from Memphis, Tennessee to Jackson, Mississippi, down Highway 51, about 220 miles, with the idea that he's going to register... Uh, or that he's going to encourage people to register and vote along the way. This is, of course, the year after the passage of the Voting Rights Act. So you're just starting to see more black voter registration in Mississippi and to fight against what he sees as kind of a larger culture of fear, right? The way the black people are intimidated by, by whites, especially from the political process. And he also has sort of a third unstated goal, which is that this will be the basis for his future political career in Mississippi. He, th he thinks he might run for lieutenant governor or governor later in the 60s. And on the second day of his walk, he's shot and wounded. All the major civil rights organizations take up his march. It becomes known as the Meredith March, also the March Against Fear. And over the next three weeks, it's this big rollicking demonstration that goes through Mississippi. It's famous for the first for unveiling the cry of black power, the slogan that'll help to define Stokely that next Carmichael. slogan. Stokely Carmichael. Martin Luther King is a participant in, in the march. 
every major figure in the civil in the civil rights movement is involved in some way, way shape, or form in the Meredith March in June of '66, and it all began with James Meredith, and and he recovers from his wounds enough to be back at the end of the march and winning the largest cheers at the final rally in Jackson. So once again, James Meredith sort of throws himself into the national conversation, and that, as we were talking about at the beginning, that was the subject of the book that I wrote that introduced me to James Meredith in the first place. Do you have another project you're working on right now? My new project has nothing to do with civil rights or James Meredith, actually. I'm uh, in the very early stages of it, but I'm writing a book about sports writers and the 1960s. Uh, so everything oh, the, I do the revolves 60s, around the yeah, 60s. Yeah. yeah, I know that. <laughs> but this is a book about how writers sort of deal with sports and how and how sports becomes to some degree politicized by the late 60s in the same way that much of American society does and gets and we see sort of a polarization of sports writers in terms of the big debates over race, th- especially through someone like Muhammad Ali or through the 1968 Olympics, but then also gender in the early 70s with Billie Jean King and the women's rights movement and sort of the sports writers, writers have their own tradition of sort of conservatism that, that we see play out. So I'm trying to kind of tell the political history of sports through the eyes of, of various writers. It is a, a project that's a little bit harder to take shape for me than some of my other ones because traditionally I've written either biographies or narrative histories that are sort of over a cohesive event. But the research is really fun. <laughs> I love to read. I love to read it, and I lo- and I love going through all this all this work. So I'm having a lot of fun with it. Well, Aram, thank you so much for coming by again and sharing Man on a Mission with us. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. It's so great to talk with you, Stephen. I was just looking at my notes before I came here, and I realized it's the fourth time that I've been on Book Talk, which makes us both quite old. (laughs) Okay. Oh, yeah. I forgot about the Democratic primary book, too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks again. Thanks so much. Aram Goodsusian is the author of Man on a Mission, James Meredith and the Battle of Ole Miss, an illustrated graphic history. The illustrator for the book is Bill Murray, and the editor is Vijay Shah, and it's published by the University of Arkansas Press. I'm Stephen Usry, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is produced in the studios of FM 89.3 WYPL Memphis, a service of the Memphis Public Library, a division of the City of Memphis. Book Talk is copyrighted by the Memphis Public Library, all rights reserved.